This is a diet of Brussels. I'm speaking to you in the week that the British government uh, announced its intention to uh, pursue uh, some legal, domestic legal approaches uh, to uh, backfill uh, any failure to renegotiate the Northern Ireland Protocol. Um, so we still haven't got the detail of what that actually might mean, but uh, Foreign Secretary Liz Truss spoke uh, earlier this week about the need to have uh, a legal instrument which would uh, allow the UK to protect the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland. And uh, she spoke about there being legal advice to the government that this would be something legal um, which uh, as uh, long-standing uh, listeners to this podcast and indeed anyone who's been following the debate about Brexit over the years will know is a surprise given that we haven't had any uh, obvious uh, legal space in which to move. Now, since I've spoken about this before, I've kind of held off uh, recording another episode, mainly because I wasn't sure there was anything left to say that hadn't been said many times before over many years. But I think it's worth just rehearsing once again the key uh, points of this and the situation that the UK finds itself in. To do that, I just want you to think about breaking the law. So you're listening to this in whatever country you live in um, and you know that there's a system of law within your country. So let's say uh, you go out and you punch your neighbour in the face. Uh, not me, I get on very well with my neighbours. But let's just say that you, know, you, you walk out and you punch uh, either your neighbour or just someone in the face and uh, knock them out. You have a good sense that at some point that will be dealt with by the institutions and the legal system of your country. So the uh, attack will be reported either by the uh, person who you've punched or by someone who's passing by. And in doing that, you'll trigger a defined set of processes and procedures. The police will be involved. You might be uh, questioned. You might be arrested. If charges are brought, you'll be taken to a process within the legal system, obviously, or potentially involving uh, courts. There'll be a system of punishment. Uh, either suspended or you might, uh, in a worst case, have to serve some uh, prison time. It will vary from country to country. The, the details of the process are not the important thing. The thing that matters here is, is that there is a reasonable expectation that there is an effective system of control and of application of laws. If we think about the international system, we don't have a system like that. That in the context of 
interstate relations, when they conclude treaties, we don't have the same sanction mechanism that we do in that domestic context. So if a state breaks a treaty or breaks off a treaty, there isn't some international police who will come and uh, question the state or arrest the state or put the state in prison. Even the question of whether you know somebody can take you to court is at best uncertain uh, and uh, at worst is non-existent. That uh, the rules are essentially made up by the participants themselves. Now, the reason for this difference isn't really the focus of this uh, podcast. Suffice to say that states, as a political form, one of their key characteristics is that they have this notion of sovereignty, which is, if you like, a a mutually uh, self-serving phenomenon. That states say... If I recognise your right to do what you like within your territory, you recognise my right to do what I like within my territory. And as long as everyone accepts that, you do what you want, I do what I want, and we define that by markings on the ground, then states develop a basis on which to hold the monopoly of the legitimate use of force. So this is this classic... uh, Weberian definition of the state, that states say violence is only acceptable on the terms that we set, that we can imply, employ violence and force to serve the protection of the system. And in the democratic system, we say, okay, well, you know, those rules are not arbitrary. We have laws which are known, which are impartially and fairly uh, implemented, uh, to everybody. Now, the international system, we don't have that because we don't have a body that sits at a international level that holds the equivalent monopoly of force. Yes, we have global institutions like the UN, we have assorted charters, declarations of human rights, an international criminal court, assorted other international courts that claim assorted jurisdiction. But their ability to actually enforce their will is much more limited. So whereas your local court that might be dealing with your uh, punching of your neighbour in the face has a reliable system to ensure that you will turn up, that you will be bound to its decisions, that those decisions are enforceable by the court and by the associated uh, organisations of the state, notably the prison system. All of those things are missing in the international context. The consequence of that is that interstate relations very much rely on the complicity of the parties, namely the states themselves. That the primary way in which we make international treaties effective is through the signatories of those treaties agreeing to what they have signed up to 
and to the more general principles of customary international law. Now, this is something that I've talked about uh, over the past couple of years, notably the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties from 1969, which is a, a codification of many of those principles of customary international law. Not all of them, and importantly, the EU is not a signatory to that convention, although the UK is. But as a baseline of practice, it really highlights where we would expect practice to be from states and from signatories of treaties. And central amongst that is this notion of pacta sunt servanda, that if you sign up to something, that then you are bound to follow that, unless some uh, very uh, exceptional uh, situations apply, that uh, you might have been forced to have signed the treaty, or that uh, there's been some fundamental change in circumstances. That sounds rather esoteric and, you know, abstract, but actually in practice a lot of what we're talking about now in relation to Northern Ireland and to the protocol is precisely about these principles and ideas being in effect on the ground. So rather than run through once more the pathways which are available to uh, the UK. I want to think more generally and abstractly about why it's consequential whether the UK follows one of those paths or tries to do something different. And at the moment, again, we're, we're unclear about what the UK is saying because we, we also have to acknowledge that the UK has been here before where it's said that it's going to disapply international law and then uh, doesn't or, you know, doesn't actually follow through on it. Uh, older listeners will remember the Internal Market Bill from a, a few years ago, which uh, explicitly said that it was not going to uh, apply certain provisions of the protocol. Uh, there was great outcry, and eventually those provisions were dropped from the final uh, act. Now, the argument at the time was that there, there was no longer any need for those provisions because some situation had changed on the ground, which it hadn't obviously changed. Uh, but it highlighted that the UK was willing to go through at least until quite a significant way through the uh, legislative process domestically in putting in place something that was an explicit rejection unilaterally of international treaty obligations. Something that very clearly is not allowed for under the Vienna Convention or customary international law or indeed very specifically under the withdrawal agreement that is the home of the protocol. So there's a, an explicit commitment in the, the withdrawal agreement to make sure that domestic legislation is in compliance with the contents of the agreement and of the protocol. So why does the UK you know, go down this line? Why does it think that this is a strategy to follow? Uh, there's two ways of looking at it. There's the political way, which is the way we usually think about it. There's the legal way, which is a, a different uh, kind of approach. The legal argument is, is that there's a degree of uh, ambiguity in these situations that 
international law, precisely because it's not enforceable and rigid in the same way as a domestic system of uh, laws is, allows states to push the boundaries, if we can put it in those terms. So even if you're not trying to break the system, there's always going to be a little margin where you might arguably be able to make a case. And in this case, there is uh, a degree of debate about the compatibility of two separate treaties that a state might have signed up to, which might be uh, incompatible and therefore require some resolution. And, you know, how do you resolve that kind of incompatibility? Is it the one that was signed first? Is it the one that was signed second? Is it that you have to have some kind of mechanism? And here, uh, legal scholars are divided um, uh, and if legal scholars are divided then practice is equally so. Primarily states try to avoid this problem in the first place by just making sure that they haven't got into that kind of problem uh, to start with and oddly that's exactly what happened in the case of the withdrawal agreement which talks a lot about the Good Friday uh, agreement and its provisions and uh, made sure as much as it could that it was in compliance with the Good Friday Agreement. So let's remember that in legal terms the Good Friday Agreement was signed between the United Kingdom and the Republic of Ireland. Those are the two signatories of that agreement, they're the two uh, key uh, guarantors uh, of it Neither of them raised any objections uh, formally uh, at the time of signing the withdrawal agreement in uh, the many years that led up to 2020. There's not been any uh, official uh, démarche in the uh, East-West bodies, the Anglo-Irish uh, joint bodies that exist to service uh, the Good Friday Agreement uh, in the time since uh, the treaty's been in place. So all of the kind of things where you might expect there to be uh, a legal uh, problem raised or legal issue raised haven't been used, which suggests that we're kind of back in the uh, political uh, arena rather than the legal one. And that legal argument uh, is highly debatable. Uh, and when I ask people if they can offer me a suggestion of how it works, no one's really got any suggestions beyond the kind of the legal pathways that exist. Things like Article 16 with the safeguards measures that you can listen to many previous episodes of this podcast about. Or the consent procedure under Article 18, which uh, can't be used for a couple of years, and even if it could, requires uh, a Northern Ireland Assembly that's uh, in session and would require a majority of MLAs to vote uh, down the provisions of the protocol, two conditions which, uh, at the time of recording, are not in place. So if we haven't got the legal routes and we haven't got strong legal arguments, then the, the logic for all of this is that the UK has taken this in a political sense. And the argument has been that by threatening to do something uh, with a legal instrument, the UK is demonstrating its determination to effect change around the protocol. 
and uh, that in so doing it raises the stakes for the EU which will bring them back to the negotiating table to secure that change. Now, more particularly, the, the fundamental disagreement between the UK and the EU in procedural terms at the moment is that the EU thinks that the UK has not uh, exhausted the scope for flexibility that exists within the protocol as it stands. So uh, there is uh, a whole set of ideas out there and there is uh, mileage still to, left to go about uh, the, uh, the ways in which you actually interpret the provisions and apply the provisions. And by contrast, the UK is saying the EU is unwilling to think about solutions to the problems that go beyond the text that would require the text to be uh, renegotiated. Both of those positions are compatible with each other. And I think you can find answers to say, or evidence to say, that both of them are justifiable positions. But logically and sequentially, they take different perspectives. That the EU is saying, we have to deal first of all with what we've got, and then... uh, try and make that work the UK is saying we don't think what there is here works and so we need to go beyond what there is the difficulty for the UK is that logically the EU's position should come first that the UK would have a much stronger argument about changing the protocol if it could demonstrate a good faith effort to try and make the protocol as it stands work and to say look we have tried our level best to make this work in every way that you have suggested that we have suggested and still it doesn't work and then because of that now we need to start talking about renegotiation but because the UK started from a position of this doesn't work and it won't work and it can't work we need to change it, the EU logically feels much aggrieved that this is something uh, that uh, short-circuits any of the efforts that it's put into with its proposals from October, which still haven't really been substantially addressed by the UK. And strikingly, uh, Truss's uh, statements uh, this week reiterated many of the same problems uh, that were listed in the command paper from last year from the UK, uh, including issues like the role of the Court of Justice, which go far beyond the much more manageable list of priorities uh, that uh, people like Boris Johnson and various other ministers have talked about as being uh, the, the nub of the problem. And here we've got very mixed messages from the UK. Some parts are saying, uh, the government is saying we have to change everything or very many things. Other parts are saying, well, this is just really about easements and adjustments and addressing some very specific points. 
The challenge for the UK is that because of its track record in this process, it's hard for the EU to have confidence in what the UK says it will do. And again, this comes back to that notion of the international system, of international law, which really requires everyone to be playing by the rules in all senses. That if you can't trust the other party, you haven't got a reliable recourse to sanctions that will penalise bad behaviour. So the EU prefers to keep things within customary practice, A, because that's how things should work, and B, because it doesn't have another way of actually trying to address the problem. And remember that the EU has based itself on a, a system of international agreement between its constituent member states. And if we start unpicking the principles of uh, the international order, we start saying, well, if I decide that I don't like something that I've signed up to, I can uh, defect from that agreement and that's all right because that's allowed, then that's a problem for the EU, but more generally for the international system, and particularly at a time when the rule-based order that we have uh, globally is more obviously under threat than it has been for some time. And this perhaps is one of the challenges that the UK faces now. That at a time when we have the war in Ukraine, Russia riding over its international obligations, whether that's in terms of the use of force or in terms of the respect of the rules of war on the, Vienna, uh, the Geneva Conventions, whether it's any of the other uh, ways in which Russia's actions represent a clear and material threat to the rule-based system, it's understandable that the EU is not going to be well disposed, quite apart from anything else, to the UK trying something which doesn't involve the invasion of another territory, but still involves a challenge to the legal frameworks that exist at an international level. This has been heightened, I think, at a time when we have the UK trying to present itself as an agent of international order. And a good example of this also came uh, last week when the UK signed uh, mutual uh, defence uh, agreements with Sweden and Finland as preludes to their accession to NATO, Turkish government uh, permitting. So the UK says that should uh, Sweden or Finland be uh, aggressed, logically by the uh, Russian Federation, then the British will come to the material and military aid of those two countries. And also, as the Finnish uh, Prime Minister pointed out, 
if the UK gets aggressed by anyone, Finland will come and help out. Now, uh, at the time, Boris Johnson talked about the importance of having reliable commitments that in signing this treaty that they were making a firm and determined and durable commitment that they would not be turned away from to come to the aid of those two countries. Now, those words, from a Brexit perspective, ring somewhat hollow because at the same time, Johnson has a government that is actively and repeatedly stating that it wants to and is willing to consider an action moves to disapply unilaterally parts of the protocol. So you can see here the the challenge that even if you can see these as two different kinds of things, two different kinds of situations, in legal terms they are the same situation. You sign a treaty, you're obliged to follow the treaty. That there's a, a good faith obligation. And from the EU's perspective, that dissonance is also quite striking. And beyond this, I think if the UK is thinking about the importance of protecting a rule-based system uh, internationally, it also has to be aware that if it pursues this uh, line to... Uh, an actual conclusion of a piece of legislation that claims the UK's right to not apply parts of the protocol, then that leaves something very clear for other states to say, well, look, the UK, paragon of international cooperation, a respectable Western democracy, liberal democracy, one of the key architects of the liberal international order in the post-war era, one of the key drafters of the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, for goodness sake, with all of that story behind it, all of that history behind it, now says it's all right to disapply parts of international law. So if it's good enough for the British, it's good enough for us. So precedent that is established by this action risks having very major consequences and especially given that this is a rather well let's say marginal case that this isn't a clear-cut case if one can even imagine what that would be like where there is an obvious way in which the UK has been put in a position that is not defensible and again those two key arguments are one it was coerced into signing the 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 treaty in the first place the protocol the other is that there's some fundamental change of circumstances which uh, applies so the implications of this situation matter not merely for the uk and not merely for the EU, but for the international order as a whole. So let's just briefly rehearse as a, a kind of a wrap-up of this, those two kinds of arguments. That there are kind of escape clauses that 
are set out in the Vienna Convention for uh, we signed it, but we shouldn't have signed it. Now, that can be uh, coercion, the use of force, but all of the provisions about the use of force and coercion require either the use of physical force or of uh, economic or political force by one party to get the other party to sign. Now, the, the EU has not demonstrated any of those kinds of actions. Yes, it wanted to have a treaty, but uh, it was uh, in a process in Article 50 where at the end of the Article 50 period, if there was no treaty, then it wouldn't be allowed to hold back the UK from withdrawing from the EU. And you'll remember, happy days, uh, all those questions about extension periods. So the reason that the UK didn't leave without a treaty was that it, its parliament decided to pass a law, the uh, Ben Act, uh, which said in 2019 that the government, if it found itself towards the end of the Article 50 period without a treaty, would be obliged to ask the EU for an extension so that it could conclude a treaty and would only be allowed to end the uh, that period if it had a treaty. So the one of the arguments you sometimes hear from government ministers is that uh, the government was over a barrel, it wasn't allowed to leave because Parliament had forced it to uh, sign, sign a treaty. Uh, that's not coercion under international law. Coercion is when one party forces the other party to do something. The Ben Act was one party forcing itself to do something. And that is something that uh, clearly fails the test uh, of uh, coercion uh, as we see it. So there's not a coercion argument. There's not a question about the legality of the process. There was uh, a ratification process in Parliament, very speedy, but still there was one. There was no question about the authority of the people uh, to sign uh, that legislation or to agree it. Uh, again, I refer you to the will of the people and of the government as an embodiment of that will. So all of those kind of before signing arguments don't stand up in international law. After the signing and after the implementation, really the only option that exists is if there is some fundamental change in circumstances. And the barrier for that is extremely high. There have been historically some cases where that's applied, but typically it's involved the collapse of a state, which has been signatory to some agreement, and then the impossibility of one of the successor states to meet the obligations of that. So we had some examples uh, at the end of the Cold War uh, with the Soviet Union uh, and with Yugoslavia. But we're talking about that kind of order of magnitude. So economic recessions don't count, changes of government don't count, shifts in public opinion don't count. We're talking about something which is a fundamental change of circumstances. Now to highlight that, uh, we should recall that the protocol itself was not plucked out of the air with the moment's thought. 
one of the reasons why Article 50 took as long as it did was that the EU and the UK spent a very, very long time in very detailed negotiations looking at all the options to see what it was that they could agree on. So it was clear from the structure that was uh, agreed at uh, in the protocol that this was a less than ideal solution, but it was better than the other solutions that were available. And as such was the least worst outcome of the process, including not agreeing anything at all. So uh, discussion about trade effects or damages to the cost of living wouldn't count as a fundamental change in circumstances, not least because at the time the parties themselves acknowledged that these things uh, might well ensue. And the government's own impact assessment talked about the economic effects that would uh, result because of the necessary imposition of borders uh, and border controls uh, in the Irish Sea. So on none of the grounds that have hereto applied in terms of uh, escaping one's uh, treaty commitments, in none of those cases has the UK got an obvious case. Now, it may be that it becomes apparent that they have discovered some other way of doing it, at which point we'll do another podcast, but it seems unlikely at this stage. But the takeaway, again, is to think again about the system of legal compulsion in a state versus the system of participation or, if you like, benign acceptance of the rules of the system uh, that exist at the international level. So how things work within a state is not how things work between states. And that matters. So whatever the UK unwinds in the coming weeks, and I'll try and come back to this uh, as we know some more, it needs to bear in mind that its actions are not constrained in the same way that they are uh, within a system of national laws. And that its actions will have implications for the international system as a whole. Now, all of that is, if you like, a, a long way to say that this is a bit of a mess, which, again, is not really a surprise or particularly even a development. The solutions, logically, are that the UK needs to try and pursue a good faith strategy of engaging with dialogue with the EU, which is ultimately what it wants to try and do in any case. It wants to have a discussion with the EU about changing the protocol. And it seems to me that the most profitable way that it could get to changing the protocol, if that's what it thinks is really necessary, is to demonstrate that it's exhausted the avenues within the text as it exists. However, I'm willing to put money on it that that is not the approach that this government will take. As we know more, uh, we will discuss it again. But in the meantime, thank you for listening and talk to you again soon.